Uh, yesterday, we were at Evan's second cross-country meet. The mid-high that he's a part of always runs second. Earlier in the day, the high school had run. And uh, one of my son's friends runs for the high school. You can watch online these days to see how they're doing because they all have chips either in the tag on their jersey or I always tell Evan, make sure you take that off when the meet's done. <laughs> but we wanted to see how his friend had done in the, the high school meet. And we saw he wasn't on the list. And we thought, oh, did he not run today? But we got there and turns out what had happened was the course at Embry-Riddle has some twists and turns. And he, along with a number of people from another school, which we were thankful for, went off the course. And what does that do in a cross-country meet? That means you're DQ'd, you're, you're disqualified. Why do I share that this morning? I share that because I, I think about something Paul says, the, the faithful apostle Paul. If there was ever someone passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's Paul, right? What does he say? 1 Corinthians 9, 26, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He used that metaphor of running for the Christian life, and, and I'm here to tell you, he's not concerned about God stripping him of his eternal salvation. That is secure in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what is he concerned about when he talks about being disqualified? He's talking about not running faithfully for the prize, not living out the call that God put on his life, not running for that well done, good and faithful servant. He didn't want to be disqualified in that sense. And I share that this morning because I think about our lives. When is it we're tempted to, to go off course in our walk with the Lord? And is it not often when we find ourselves in the middle of a trial? Because the enemy comes along and he begins to plant seeds of doubt in our mind about who God is in those moments. If he really loved you, he wouldn't have allowed this into your life. And I could go on and on. And what I want to tell you, you want to stay on course in your walk with God. We have to decide before those trials come what we believe about God. Because if we wait till the middle of it, it's a lot more easy to be driven by our feelings and our emotions. And that's what we've been talking about in the book of Esther. That no matter how dark it is in our lives, God is at work in the shadows. And we've been talking about some truths about God, some anchors that we have to cling to. That He is sovereign, right? He's absolutely in control. That his wisdom is infinite. His ways are, are higher than our ways. And that he loves his children and is working for their good, even in the middle of their trials, right? We see that idea even in James chapter 1. What does James say in James 1, 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if we just stop there, how many of you are saying, that James is out to lunch. Count it joy. Joy and trials. I don't put those two things together, James. What are you talking about? Why should I count it for joy? 
he goes on to talk about what God wants to do in the lives of his children. Count it joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. God wants to work perseverance in the lives of his children during their trials. And he says, let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect. That word let is important. We can fight against that process by, by not walking in faith through the trial. But he says, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking in nothing. He wants to work perseverance in the lives of his children. That's a trait that's needed in this world today. Amen. I think about how it's even more personal than a character trait when you get to 1 Peter 1.7. He's writing to a, a church that's being persecuted, likely under Nero, who lit his garden with Christians dipped in pitch and, and, and set on fire. And what, what does Peter say to that church? He says, God tested the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. And to really get into what he's talking about, you got to think of the goldsmith. And historians tell us that at this time, as they heated that gold and removed the impurities, they knew it was pure when the, the goldsmith looked in the gold and could see the reflection of his own face. Now think about what Peter is saying to believers. He he wants us in the middle of our trials to become more and more like Jesus, to reflect his face to the world around us. But I also think if we let the trials do their work in our lives, it can help make us useful to others. Because what does Paul talk about in Corinthians? God comforts us in our afflictions that we might comfort others in theirs, right? And I think about prickly pear jelly. Why do you think about prickly pear jelly? Well, last week, one of the couples in the church made some homemade prickly pear jelly, and, and they brought it to us, and we had it on our toast Monday morning, delicious. But you think about what that prickly pear has to go through before it becomes useful for consumption. They had to pluck it. They had to pull all those needles off. They had to, to smash it, and they had to add some sugar to make it something that we would enjoy eating. And, and what I'm telling you is sometimes... When we're in those trials, not sometimes, always, if we will allow God to do what he wishes in our hearts in those moments, it will make us more useful to those around us. Because there's others going through suffering as well. And some of us will say amen to that on Sunday morning. But you know what we sometimes do? We'll, we'll get up tomorrow, and it's Monday, right? And we'll leave this long behind. That was Sunday, but this is Monday. And what I want to tell you today is, don't do that. Don't do that because the truth we see in God's word on Sunday is meant to go with us on Monday and throughout the whole week. And what I believe that we're going to see today in Esther chapter 5 is that God sees us. He sees us in the ins and outs of our daily schedule. And he is at work in the ins and outs of our daily schedule, including the delays that we don't want to have including the difficulties that we didn't know were coming this week, including the disappointments. God sees us, and he's at work. Will you remember that tomorrow? I hope so. Why do I talk about God seeing us? 
Well, do you remember Genesis 16? Just to go before Esther for a moment. Remember the household of Abraham and Sarah? They thought it would be a good idea for him to have a baby through Hagar. And Hagar conceived and she had contempt on Sarah. And they sent her out into the desert. And you can imagine this, this desperate woman at, at the end of her rope. And the word tells us in Genesis 16 that the angel of the Lord met her out there. And I'm going to paraphrase. You can read it. He said, hey, I've got a plan for you and your family too. And you remember what she called him? Genesis 16, 13. That she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. The God who sees me. Do you believe in the God who sees me? The God who, who sees you. As I told this to the Wednesday night prayer group, I, I told them the Hebrew for the God who sees me is Elroy. I said, don't confuse that with the sun on the Jetsons. <laughs> Those of you who are laughing, we, you just all aged yourself a little bit, <laughs> right? This is two words, Elroy. And scholars tell us that's the only place in the whole, whole Bible that name comes up. But we see the truth in the New Testament, don't we? As Jesus tells us, his eye is even on the sparrow. Watches over the sparrow. Of course he's watching you. Think about the wonders of Psalm 139. Read the whole thing sometime. Just a couple verses. Verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. Now, I can seem pretty mundane, right? Sitting and rising. But God sees even that. He, he knows when you get up from here and leave today. Right? You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And when you combine that truth of a God who sees with everything else we said about God earlier, does that not give you an anchor to hold to no matter what this week brings? We have a choice if we know that truth and how we respond to it. And I believe in Esther chapter 5, we see two different choices played out. The first one is this. It is to cooperate with his purposes. You say, well, I don't know what all his purposes are in this week. I don't either. So how do I cooperate with his purposes? By humbling ourselves before him in prayer and dependence. That, that's how it begins. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 5, verse 1. It says, on the third day. On the third day, and if you're new with us in this series, or maybe if you were here with us last week, you're saying, what third day? And that's why context is important. For what third day? We go back to chapter 4, verse 16. Esther told Mordecai, the Jew, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And you're saying, what is she talking about? Well, you remember what happened if you've been with us. Haman, a man described as the enemy of the Jews, second in command in the Persian Empire, had gotten the king to sign off on a decree to destroy and annihilate all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. 
And Mordecai, the Jew, said to Esther, the Jew, who was queen, you need to plead with the king on our behalf. And you remember her response before. It was, but Mordecai, I could, I could die. You see, there was a law that anyone went into the king without him extending the scepter could be killed. And they found reliefs of Persian rulers with a man with an axe behind him for just such a purpose. That was before. But what happens in this chapter after the prayer and fasting that was going on among all the faithful Jews in the empire? They're crying out, Yahweh, help us, I believe, during this time. What happens after? She approaches the king. Her, her life on the line. What does it say here in verse 1, chapter 5? Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. Royal robes. I think she got decked out for this moment. Partially because she knows King Xerxes. We've seen his love for, for beauty and women throughout this book, right? And I think about that, and I think about something our five-year-old told me this week. Luke was telling me about marriage. We were at the park, and he's telling me about it. He said, when, when a lady looks nice, and you look at her, you get married. <laughs> I said, hey, he's not wrong. That happened to me. Now, there's, there's more to it, and the story goes on. But, hey, he also had ideas about kids. He said, I want to have six kids and I said, why? He said, so they can do the work. So he, he, <laughs> he's thinking ahead. But I think Esther is likely thinking about that same thing with Xerxes. She, she wants to set this up the best way she knows how, knowing what, what he likes. So she puts on her royal robes and she goes in there in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So she went from what was humanly speaking a legitimate excuse not to go, right? I might, I might die to, to going in. See, I think it's good to explore what happened in the middle. What happened in the middle? Well, a couple things. You remember last week that, number one, Mordecai encouraged her. He said, Esther, who knows but that you're in that position for such a time as this. Esther, that's why you're queen. Don't waste this opportunity. And I think about what Mordecai did for her, and I think about we need that sometimes, especially when we're in a dark situation, right? We want to follow God, but it sure helps if there's another believer around encouraging us. And it's also good for us to look around at the believers around us going through it and say, how can I put my arm around them and say, keep on, keep on. God's got a plan for you even in this. I think about what she said after that. I'll do it, and if I perish... I perish. She, she puts her life squarely in the hands of God. I think she's also in doing that, acknowledging something that we don't like to acknowledge. That life on this fallen planet is difficult. It's difficult. We try to run from that truth. We try to escape it. But even Jesus said, what, in this world, you will have trials. And I think about a quote that I read this week. One man put it this way, life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. Some of us are saying, why is that a great truth, right? He keeps going. 
He says, it is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. You understand what he's saying? He's saying once we get away from these illusions and these dreams that somehow we're going to get through this fallen world without suffering, we're in a better place to face it. But, but we don't stop there. We must go on to what Jesus said to his disciples. In this world, you will have trials, but what? Take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's where we remember the third thing that they did as they fasted. I remember many of those Jews, including Esther herself, were also crying out in prayer to Yahweh, the, the covenant-keeping God. Lord, help us. Protect us from Haman. He's breathing death and vengeance against your people. Help us. She, she took it to the Lord, I believe, in the fasting and prayer. And you know what happened there? She found strength in God. When you're going through a trial, that is the last thing the enemy wants you to do. Take it to headquarters. Take it to Yahweh. Take it to El Shaddai. Take it to El Roy, the God who sees and finds strength in him. But that's exactly where we need to go in humble dependence on him. I think about that and, and I think about a friend of mine that shared two acronyms for fear and we've all got to consider which way we go with it. The first one is forget everything and run. And we'd love to do that sometimes with our trials, right? Just run, hide. And, and certainly I'm not going to stand up underneath it and walk with God because, God, you allowed me to go through this. So right now, forget everything and run. But what we need, what we need as believers who find strength in God is this second acronym. We need to be believers who face everything and rise. Face everything and rise. This world could use some believers who would do that through faith in God. Verse 2, how'd it go over? When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. It's hard to imagine how much her heart was beating before this moment, I imagine. And what relief she found as that scepter came out saying, yes, come. And, and she may have even kissed it. In verse 3, the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And if she was relieved just a minute ago, can you hear it? Maybe inside, like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so what would she say after this generous offer? I'm going to paraphrase it. I'd, I'd like you, king, and, and Haman to... Come to a feast. Verse 4, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, some of you, like me, are like, why didn't she just pop it out there? Why, why schedule a feast? And as, as I was talking with Carolyn about that this week, I, I like one of the possibilities she threw out. Maybe she felt like a, a hesitation. I need to pray about this more before I put it out there. Maybe she knew the king's love for feasts, right? And say, hey, I want to make sure he's happy before I 
pop this request to, to save the Jews out there. So we can understand that. How would the king respond to her invitation to a feast? Verse 5, the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. He's very favorable. And any faithful Jew reading this book for encouragement would likely in their mind go to Proverbs 21.1 here. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God was working, making this king favorable towards her response. What if we remembered that in every difficult meeting we went into this week? Now, I'm not saying the person we're meeting with is always going to do what we want, but God is in control to get done what he wants. And would that not give us a greater sense of peace? They go to the banquet. Now, I want to talk to you about Esther's strange request at this first banquet. She says, I would like you and Haman to come to a second banquet. Then I'll tell you what I want. Paraphrase. Look, look at it in the scripture. Verse 5. The king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She's, I want you to come to another feast tomorrow. Now, I think about King Xerxes, and any of you married men might go with me on this, and I might get in trouble here. This is the kind of stories I should share probably when Carolyn's helping with the children's ministry, but I, I wonder if Xerxes is sitting there. Why is she asking for a second feast? And he's looking at his library for, you know, discovering the mind of a woman. Or like the other day, I was waiting for Evan to get out across country to pick him up. And I, I called Carolyn and she said, what are you doing while you're waiting? And I said, I'm reading a book called If Only He Knew, Understanding Your Wife by Gary Smalley. And she said, are you serious? <laughs> I said, yes, I, I, I want to keep learning. I want to keep learning. Is, is Xerxes wondering why, why a second feast? And maybe you're wondering the same thing too, like, does she really like the, the special in the king's kitchen this week? or Why a, a second feast? Bottom line, we don't know for sure. It could have been her, her woman's intuition that this too was, was not the time. Uh, she could have had that fear that, hey, I need to pray some more again before I'm comfortable getting out there. We don't know why she did it. What we do know, if you've ever read through this whole book of Esther, is that God was at work in that delay because there were some things that were going to happen between those two feasts that would lead to the deliverance of his people. Things including the elevation of Mordecai the Jew in the eyes of the king and the lowering of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, in the eyes of the king. And what I love, Esther's like us, she had no idea about that. Just as you and I often have no idea about what's going on in the delays and difficulties and twists and turns of, of our weeks. 
but God did. And we're going to see those events begin to unfold at the end of this chapter, but next week we will really see them begin to unravel in chapter 6. But as we go through those, I want you to watch and see, can you see God's sovereign finger at work in the schedule of Esther and the king and Haman and Mordecai? The second part of this chapter leads us to the second response. You remember the first response to knowing who God is and how he's working? One is to humble ourselves before the Lord in dependence and prayer. The second is its opposite, to oppose God by pride and self-sufficiency. Here we look at Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But first I want to look at his rage. This was a man filled with rage. Verse 9, it doesn't start out that way. It says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Of course, he just had feast with the king and the queen. And to have it with the queen is extra special because kings in Persia would protect their queens from other men. So for him to be there with both of them, he was feeling pretty good. But something happened. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, Mordecai the Jew, that, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He's on the way out of the palace and he sees Mordecai. And before it was just bow to me. Now he wants him to actually tremble before him. And Mordecai doesn't do that. And he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Jews might think of Ecclesiastes 7.9 when they read about Haman here. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. I think about that, and I think about a quote I read this week. I want you to ponder this. You can tell the size of a man by the size of the things it takes to irritate him. Same would be true of a woman. You think about that. In a world, much of which is irritated all the time, could we not stand out more <laughs> if we were not irritated by every little thing that didn't go our way? Haman was filled with wrath. Now I want to talk about his pride. And as I think about his pride here, you're going to see it in a minute. I can't help but think about what you see sometimes on Highway 17. You're going down there and you see those big, beautiful, hot air balloons. And, and I read this next section and I can imagine Haman being down on the ground. He's the one filling them up just by talking. Because this man is, is full of hot air. And it's all about himself, right? What happened? He's angry at Mordecai, but verse 10, it says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, and he's going to start this list of how awesome he is. He's like, listen to this, guys. How awesome am I? Number one, he says, the splendor of his riches. Number two, the number of his sons. Number three, all the promotions. Number four, he says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. Now, there's great irony in that. He has no idea why he's the guest of honor. And number five, tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. He's just proud, proud, proud. And 
faithful Jewish reader might think about Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now I want to move on to Haman's plan. We'll call it Haman's plan part B because he already had the edict out there to destroy all the Jews months later. Watch this. He finished bragging to his people. Verse 13, he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see what's going on here? This man was second in command in the Persian Empire. He had everything this world dreams for going for him. And he is still a miserable man. Don't, don't miss that. It makes me think about a quote from Michael Green. His money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Amusement, but not happiness. A crucifix, but not a savior. It's been said by many, it's a sad day when you climb the world's ladder and get to the top and realize it was not everything you dreamed it was. He wants more. Verse 14, his wife and friends have an idea for him. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. 50 cubits, that's 75 feet. And many scholars believe this is not an Old West style gallows where you hang by a rope. It was the Persian pole sharpened at the top upon which they would impale someone. Why 75 feet tall? So everybody could see. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Now you're going to have to wait till next week to see how this begins to unravel according to God's plan. But for now, I want to go back to where we started. And we've seen just a glimpse in Esther's life. God sees the ins and outs of our schedules. And he is at work in those daily schedules. The delays, the, the difficulties, the disappointments. The unforeseen change of plans. Maybe some of you are sitting in some of those right now. And we don't always understand what God is up to in those moments, right? Who would admit that? I'm there. But we believe in faith that God is the God who sees us and the God who is working in them. And I want to illustrate this with just, just three examples. Two are from our own lives and one is from the life of someone in, in church history. Uh, the first one, Saturday morning. I was out for my run before 7 o'clock because Evan had his cross-country meet a little bit later that morning. And before 7 o'clock, I, I see a call on my phone. And uh, it was a, a lady named Mary, someone we've walked through some stuff with. We first met Mary when her husband was dying in the hospital couple of years ago and we walked with her through that she's a believer and then we walked with her when her own health began to decline and she was bedridden because her legs wouldn't function properly and prayed and shared scripture with her and then we hadn't heard an update for months and, and I'm out on this walk 
actually praying about this message, praying about how God works in the ins and outs of our schedules. And Lord, what would you have me share about that as an example? And the phone rings and it's Mary. And at first I didn't get it, but then five minutes later I'm thinking, you know, people don't call before seven in the morning unless something serious is going on. So I called her back a little after seven and I said, hey, uh, Mary, this is Scott Mitchell. Did you just call? And she said, no. At, at least I didn't mean to. I said, well, okay, it showed up on my phone, so I thought I'd give you a call back. What's going on? And she said, well, I'm going through it again. She said, I, ha I have pneumonia, and just last night I was taken to the hospital. I've got some other complications that they're telling me I have to decide between surgery or just going home and living with it. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I told her, Mary, I know you didn't mean to call me. And I know it certainly wasn't on my schedule to call you. But let me tell you about a verse I just read right before I went out for my run. It was actually the verse of the day on one of the, the apps. So Mary, Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And I said, as you weigh this decision, what, what are you looking at? And she went through what surgery would mean, what, what not having surgery might mean. And I said, Mary, I'm no doctor. But what I want to do is, is take it to the one who created you with you. Let's pray. And we prayed and took it to the Lord together. And you should have heard her gratitude, not, not to me, but to the Lord for setting up that moment that was not intended by her and was not on her schedule. We both were in awe of how that happened. I also think of another one that, that has a, a bit of a different uh, spin to it. I want to show you a picture. That is our son Jaden's car. And rarely do I preach a sermon series without, without it touching down in our lives in some way, shape, or form. And we've been talking about God is sovereign in all things. A week ago yesterday, I, I went to bed on a Saturday night early, like I always do, 8 or 8.30. And Jaden had been at the, the fair with his friends. And I heard my phone. I looked over and learned that he had been in an accident. Now, he did it the right way. The first thing he texted was, I'm okay. I said, thank you. Thank you, Jaden. Anytime this happens, please do that. But I could hear he was shaking, as any of us would be in that moment. So I hopped in the truck, and anybody who's been there can imagine that ride to the, the accident scene. And got there and gave him a big hug. And I said, man, however this shakes out, that white thing out there, that, that's a thing. You're okay. You're a person. The other people are okay. That matters a whole lot more. And it turns out the, the other driver was cited for, for failure to yield. And as, as we all processed through this, it still shook us all up, even though every, everybody was okay. Carolyn was out driving around a couple days later, and she saw a license plate that said Sovereign T with a big T on it. And she was telling me about how she'd been pondering it in the midst of this. And, and then we really got to thinking there, there's another way we saw God's sovereignty in this situation. So that's the passenger side. Jaden's airbag on the driver's side did go off, but most of that damage was to the passenger side. 
earlier in the day, he had been talking to his cousin about, hey, would you like to ride with me to and from the fair? And for whatever reason, that did not pan out. And we talked about, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that not only is Jaden okay, but that Micaiah wasn't sitting in that passenger seat. We see your hand in that, that change of plans. Thank you. And just a disclaimer here, if you happen to talk to Jaden, please don't ask him to relive the de details of the event. It's hard enough to get back in and drive again, but if you feel led to, put your arm around him and encourage him. But some of us might be thinking, hey, okay, you see it in that situation, but what about those moments where someone is in the passenger seat? When someone is severely injured, or their lives are taken in a crash. Is, is God still sovereign there? And the biblical answer is yes. Even in those moments, God is the God who sees what you're facing. When the disease carries on, when, when the crash goes away, you didn't want it to. He is the God who loves you and is there working with you as child. The example I want to share of that is from the life of a man named A.B. Simpson. Any of you heard of A.B. Simpson? He was born in 1843 in Canada. Any native Canadians here? Right on. He would go on later in his life to found the Christian Missionary Alliance. You may have heard of that. He would go on to write some wonderful, encouraging books. One in particular that I've been diving into recently about the person of the Holy Spirit. But his life had some twists and turns that did not go according to his plan. I want you to read something he wrote later on in life. He said, nothing under God has ever been a greater blessing to me than the hard places that began with me more than a half century ago and have not ended. And you read somebody write something like that, you want to know what did they go through and, and why would he speak about them as such a, a blessing? Well, he went through a couple things. One, he and his brother both felt called into full-time pastoral ministry. And he had that desire in his heart, but he remembers as a 14-year-old, his, his parents sat him down and said, we only have money to, to fund the training for, for one of you. And that's going to be the older brother. A.B. was the, the younger brother. And so he had to go about it in a way that required a lot more work on the side. But that was only the beginning, paying his own way for training. During that process, he got so deathly ill that his doctor visited him and said, you cannot read for at least a year. You need to rest. So everything he wanted to prepare for was on hold. And as he lay in that bed, he, he called his father and he said, Father, pray for me. I feel like I am, I'm dying. And he writes of that time, he said, I had no personal hope in Christ. My whole religious training had left me without any conception of the sweet and simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, I had hoped that God would spare me long enough to find that peace in Jesus Christ. His, his health started to rally to where he was able to read again. 
And I want you to, to listen to his words. He, he pulled out a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And he says, My eyes fell upon a sentence that opened for me the gates of life eternal. Those words in that book said, The first good work you will ever perform is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Until you do this, all your works, prayers, tears, and good resolutions are in vain. It is just to believe that he saves you according to his word, that he receives and saves you here and now. For Jesus has said, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. The moment you do this, you will pass into eternal life. You will be justified from all your sins and receive a new heart in all the gracious operations of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, to my poor, bewildered soul, this was like the light from heaven that fell upon Saul of Tarsus. And he gave his life to Jesus and found a peace of salvation that only comes in his righteousness. Think about it, totally different than his schedule, but what was wrong with his schedule? He's trying to prepare for ministry for the Lord without even knowing the Lord. And God in his sovereignty used that change of schedule to bring him to step one and went on to use him in mighty ways for his kingdom. Maybe you've seen it in your lives. I want to close by asking us, do we believe in the God who sees? The God who sees us in the ins and outs of our daily schedule. And if so, what do we do? What do we do? We humbly depend on him in prayer. What if we started each day like this, like David did, Psalm 5, 2. Before we jump into our schedule, David said, Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. Before I ever step out of this bed, I lay my day before you, Lord, and I'm going to wait expectantly for you to work. I may or may not see it. It may or may not be what I want, but I trust you. Could we do that? I think that would change our lives. Lord, I thank you for this book because if we put ourselves in the, the shoes of the Jewish people there, we... We understand the, the fear and the, the cries of longing to you to intercede on their behalf. The unknowns that, that faced them as they brought that to you in fasting and, and prayer. Or there may be somebody in this room, I don't know all the delays and difficulties and twists and turns that, that got them scratching their head or, or worse this morning, but I pray that they would find peace. Find peace in the God who sees and the God who is at work, even in those twists and turns, on behalf of his children for their good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as we prepare for communion, i got to ask you a, a question. Because Romans 8.28, that promise of God working all things together for good, it's, it's limited to a certain group. You know what it says? It says, for those who love him. It is for believers in Jesus Christ that that promise is spoken. And I wonder if, if that's you this morning. Have you come to God through faith? 
in Jesus Christ. Think about Esther approaching that king with the scepter. I appreciate the words of Matthew Henry here. Listen to this. He said, Esther came to a proud, imperious man. We come to the God of love and grace. She was not called. We are. The spirit says come and the bride says come. She had a law against her. We have a promise, many a promise in favor of us. She had no friend to introduce her, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, in whom he is well pleased. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We have something far more powerful than a scepter. We have the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Have you come there? Are you his child? If you are, I want to invite you to remember his sacrifice that made a way in communion. The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me father we thank you for the cross of jesus christ where you gave your only son the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and the privilege through faith in him we have of coming into your presence, no matter what this week's schedule holds, for grace and mercy in our time of need. As we prepare to take our offering and close this morning, I pray that you'd help us use that for the furtherance of the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.